0: This is undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Bucksbaum. About one-third of COVID patients will develop long COVID, meaning that their symptoms will linger for about three to six months after being infected. with symptoms like debilitating fatigue, brain fog, and shortness of breath. Researchers are trying to figure out exactly why this is happening. New research from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences has identified a potential antibody as the instigator of long COVID. Here's how the researchers think the process works. An antibody attacks a key enzyme involved in helping the immune system fight off an infection. That enzyme is called ACE2, and as a result, the immune system starts attacking itself and causing an inflammatory response. Joining me now to help us better understand what we do and don't know about long COVID is Dr. John Arthur. He's the study's lead author and the chief of the Division of Nephrology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Dr. John Arthur, thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Hi, Shoshana, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Okay, so to start off, I kind of want to do a little bit of Immune System 101 here, if that's okay. Um, Many of us may not remember sort of the general scope of like how our immune system fights off a virus. So I want you to walk through sort of when we get a virus, if you can track COVID-19. What does your immune system do? And then after that, I'll have you walk through for us what you found about how patients with long COVID, how their immune system maybe is behaving a little bit differently than that.
1: Sure. So the immune system is designed to um, identify things that are foreign to it, things that are not part of the self. And so when it sees that virus come in, it uh, generates a number of different responses And the part of it that we've been focused on is the antibody response. So some part of the virus um, is recognized as being foreign by the the immune system and then um, activates a series of different cell, cell processes that end up leading to antibodies being formed. There's one specific part of the antibody that is designed to recognize this new thing. And so then that antibody is made, the antibody binds to the virus and activates other things in the immune system that end up hopefully destroying the virus and allowing the person to be able to, uh, to, to stop the infection.
0: Yeah, so what, so what did you find is going on here for patients with long COVID? How is their immune system responding a little bit differently?
1: So what we think is happening is that that first antibody, so now the antibody that recognizes the coronavirus protein is also new to the, to the immune system. And so the immune system sees that and recognizes that as a foreign antigen and makes another antibody against, that, the, against the first antibody. And uh, so, so that's what we think is happening. Now the interesting part of it is that this second antibody that recognizes the original antibody that, that came up against the coronavirus, that's a mirror image of what the, um, pro- the virus binds to. In order for the virus to be able to get into the cell, and for, in order for any virus to be able to get into the cell, it has to have a protein on its surface, that recognizes some protein on the surface of the cell. All cells, um, all viruses, um, have to act intracellularly. Unlike other things like bacteria, which can act outside the cell, viruses have to get inside the cell and then they hijack the machinery of the cell that they get into in order to be able to make new viruses. In this case, the protein that they're binding to on the surface of the cells that they're going to get into is this protein called ACE2, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. But uh, but the important thing is that this new second antibody, which is called an anti-idiotypic antibody, can now bind to your own proteins on your own cell, something that uh, doesn't actually help in terms of, of getting rid of the virus.
0: Basically, what you're saying is that in people with long COVID, they're developing this other auto antibody that is not helping your immune system. It's it's stopping that process of being able to stop that virus from reproducing.
1: So that's what we think. Now it's important to say. That what we've identified so far is that there are antibodies against this protein ACE2 in people with COVID. And and we actually identified them in quite a few, 80-ish percent of people that have had COVID and recovered from it have got these antibodies. And our control group that never had an infection with COVID, um, none of those patients had antibodies against ACE2. So it really looks like it's associated with the infection. What we haven't shown yet is that this is actually the cause. So the, the rest of it is um, speculation, but right. it all makes sense. It, it really all fits together that it really could be the cause.
0: Yeah. So how does this like, process, I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what we do and don't know. <laughs> um, obviously, the science is still developing on how this process works for long COVID. So based on what you know, how does what's going on in patients with long COVID, how does that contribute to the type of symptoms that they're having? Like fatigue, I know, is like one of the big ones that people suffering from long COVID have. How does this process going on in your body result in the kind of symptoms that people are having three, six months down the road?
1: That's a really interesting question. And and actually one that we sort of struggled, we did struggle with at the beginning of this. So so the um, this ACE2, So the virus sees it as a receptor that it can get into the cell, and that's really all it cares about. But to the to people that have this, the ACE two is an enzyme, and the enzyme um, converts one hormone to another hormone. It converts angiotensin two to angiotensin one to seven, and angiotensin two activates the immune system, among other things. It does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is activate the immune system and angiotensin 1 to 7 um, inactivates the immune system. So as as we're thinking about this, um, so we knew already that that the coronavirus during the infection binds to ACE2 and can increase or decrease the activity of the ACE2. And so acutely during the active phase of the infection, we knew that all of this happened and that that led to the activation of the immune system um, and so that all made sense. And it seemed to us like maybe this, this same thing could be happening in the, um, in the long-term setting. And if it did, it could lead to the, to the, to the um, symptoms of long COVID. But what I really couldn't figure out was how is it doing that? The um, studies have been done and shown that the suppression of ACE2 that acute, occurs acutely only lasts for maybe two or three weeks. Um, and then the activity of ACE2 comes back again and that's all, um, so everything is, should be restored. And yet it seemed like these patients that were having the symptoms of long COVID, it would all fit together that maybe ACE2 was being suppressed. So I, I thought about it and I couldn't come up with an answer. So um, we've got a really smart uh, immunologist um, here at UAMS. His name is Terry Harville. And when I have a complicated immunology question, I, I call him up and I did. And uh, I said, Terry, you know, I, I know all this part, but I just don't know what's the, what's the cause of it. What's, what's causing the decrease in ACE2? And it took him about 10 seconds to come up with the answer. He, he had it right there almost on the tip of his tongue. And, uh, and he told me that it, we could very well be this um, mechanism that I told you about the formation of these anti-idiotypic antibodies because of, of, of the first antibody and then the second antibody, and that that could be the cause of it all. And so that's how we got started looking for this antibody.
0: This immune response that we're seeing for long COVID, how is it similar to other autoimmune diseases that people might have?
1: Well, um, it's, it's similar in that it is an autoantibody, and there's a whole mm-hmm. great big literature, lots of diseases um, caused by autoantibodies, so, um, so that makes sense. But the thing that's unique about this part is this particular um, cause of it can only be caused by a virus that binds to the ACE2 protein. Um, in order to be able to get into the cell. That's, that's really the reason that we see specifically this with, um, with SARS-CoV-2 infection. The original SARS coronavirus um, also binds to ACE2. There's only a handful of other uh, viruses that bind to ACE2. So in that way, it's unique. So it's similar in that it is an autoantibody, but mm-hmm. in the specific way that it's formed, it's different.
0: Yeah, so it's not similar to other things it's it's its own that's why it's been so challenging for researchers to figure out what's going on because it is different in a lot of ways is what you're saying
1: it it is yeah it's 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 what why we're i guess so excited about this we've we've found what we think is at least a, a possible pathway um for for how these symptoms could be formed and it all fits together with the science of what we know the way the virus gets in the response to the virus the activation of the immune system it all fits together
0: yeah. So one of the things that I found interesting was that the people that you studied for this that weren't hospitalized from COVID, you weren't able to find this antibody. Um, why, why do you think that was? Was it a timing thing of when they were tested?
1: So that would, I think, be the most likely thing. So the, the, the set of samples that we had for this study were de-identified because uh, that, that, those, that, those were the samples that we had access to, meaning we don't know who the patients were that they came from. We had a little bit of information about them, but we, we didn't really, we didn't know when they were infected, for
0: instance. Right.
1: But what we speculate is that it takes a while for these antibodies to form because it's a two-step process. First, you have to have the whole process that forms the first antibody, and only then when you've got the first antibody formed and circulating and getting out there and activating the immune system, then can you get the second antibody to form. So that's what we think is happening.
0: Yeah, so it's not necessarily that people who weren't hospitalized don't have long COVID or don't develop long COVID, because I interviewed um, quite a few people that you know weren't, I had done some reporting on long COVID, and there was a whole bunch of people that weren't hospitalized, were considered to have a sort of mild case of the virus, um, and they did end up, end up having long COVID.
1: Yes, there, there's a lot of reports of that, and, and that makes sense. I, I think what you described is, is most likely what's happening, that, that the, the samples that we looked from at from the outpatients were just too early, and, but that you can get, um, really, no matter what your severity, you could still develop these anti-idiotypic antibodies against days two and still end up with it that there are some studies that appear to show that people with more severe disease are more likely to get long COVID, but there's plenty of examples of people that had mild disease or, or maybe asymptomatic disease and still develop symptoms that are consistent with long COVID.
0: What does this understanding of the potential mechanism here of long COVID, what does that mean for being able to come up with a, an effective treatment? Because I know right now, Um, People that have long COVID, they have a constellation of different symptoms, and there's not really an effective way right now for them to get treatment. It's like, you know, maybe they'll be treating the symptoms, but not, you know, eliminating long COVID, not eliminating what's causing it all. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's why it's so important to understand the mechanism in order to be able to get at what the treatments are. And, and, you know, we are still in the very early stages of this, but we now that we think we know that this antibody might be involved, we can start looking at things, at, at the way that it works, and the pathways that are involved, um, by getting plasma, looking at what's activated, what's not activated, and hopefully come up with some treatments for that.
0: Do we know? I mean, from your research or other related research, do we know why some people are developing long COVID and others don't? They are their immune system is able to fight off the virus, and you know they recover in that original two to three week window that you had mentioned that original research suggested.
1: We don't. So, so we, we saw that of the people that, the, the, the group that to me, which is the most interesting, is this convalescent group. And, and these were samples of people that donated plasma that could be infused into people that to, to treat their long COVID because of the antibodies that they had. And so that group had had documented COVID, and they had to be at least two weeks beyond having any symptoms. So they'd completely recovered. So that group, we know that they were a ways out. And about 80% of those patients had antibodies against ACE2. But we, we think that... Um, that Probably the the um, incidence of long COVID is much lower than that. the 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 percentages are really variable, but you said thirty percent in the introduction. That seems to be about the median of what all the different studies show. Right, thirty percent <laughs> of people end up with long COVID. So if eighty percent of people have antibodies and only thirty percent have long COVID, what's going on with these other fifty percent? And why are some of them? unlucky and develop symptoms, even though a lot more people have antibodies. We don't really know the answer to that. We have some speculation about what it could be. Um, for one thing, you could the, the, even though all of the antibodies are against ACE2 protein, it could be different parts of the protein. So the antibodies could recognize different parts of the protein, and maybe that makes a difference. Maybe it's the um, concentration of antibodies. Maybe you need a high concentration, and we don't have data about that yet. Maybe it's the persistence of the antibodies. Um, So it could be that some people get rid of these antibodies, and that's the natural process for these um, anti-idiotypic antibodies, that they should go down over time. It's interestingly that there are a lot of case reports of people that have gotten improvement in their long COVID symptoms after they've been vaccinated. And hmm. that fits together with this hypothesis, too, that, um, that it could be that it, it re-regulates the production of these antibodies, that when you get this new antigen from the vaccine, that it re-regulates it and causes those, um, those anti-idiotypic antibodies that are causing the problem to decrease.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I think also with the rollout of the vaccine, um, a lot of people have been, you know, there is a tension on long COVID, but I think especially with the vaccine, people are saying like, okay, if you get vaccinated, then you're going to be um, less likely to get a severe form of the virus. Um, but I think, do you think that there's a missing link here of talking about long COVID now that we know, you know, how prevalent it is? Do you think that people need to be considering long covid a little bit more when they're talking about risk of getting covid and the symptoms and the severity?
1: I think that's a really good point that you know if you if you don't get long covid or if you don't get covid infection the acute infection um you shouldn't get the 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 symptoms of long covid.
0: Yeah, so I mean I know that this this research that um this study is sort of this exciting sort of breakthrough of like, finally, you know, understanding long COVID. So what for you, I know we talked about some of this, but what for you are the big questions about who gets long COVID or how it works that you think that you're um, looking to answer? I know you have some um, follow up research to this sort of early in the works, like what what's your next step? And what are the big questions that you're trying to answer next?
1: So the part that we're already working on now is, is there an association between symptoms and, and the antibody levels? And that, that'll give us, get us a lot closer to understanding um, partly what you asked before about why some people and not other people with the antibodies. But more importantly, even it'll show us, um, it, it, does this seem like a really feasible thing and is, are there really high levels of antibodies in the people that, that have symptoms? And we're focusing on fatigue. Um, we're hoping to be able to recruit people from, um, from all over the country into this study. So if people are interested in participating, they could go to the uh, Translational Research Institute website and, in particular, go to arresearch.org. That's as in Arkansasresearch.org. And they can register, and there's a checkbox that they can click that they're interested in long COVID research and we'll be contacting people in there um, about participating in this.
0: As you're putting together this new study and trying to piece together, okay, like, what do we know about long COVID? Is this, is this autoantibody that you found what's causing it? Is there a possibility that there could be something else causing long COVID that um, you haven't looked at yet?
1: Yes, definitely. So yeah, so we're still in the early stages of this. And that could definitely be the case. It could be that, you know, maybe we have identified the cause of all of the symptoms. It could be we've identified the cause of none of the symptoms. And this is just something that happens, but it actually doesn't cause the symptoms. Or it certainly could be a cause of some of the symptoms, but not all of them.
0: Yeah. We're still in, we're still in early stages. And I always like to, you know, iterate that, especially with like COVID research is that people are so eager for like answers, you know what I mean? But science is an iterative process and it takes time to figure this stuff out. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about the process of coming up with the idea for this study and how you pulled together the researchers um, that you worked with to design the study and then um, get it going?
1: Yeah, I'm really happy to talk about that. The way this all came together is so cool. The, um, it really sort of started um, along two parallel tracks. So when COVID um, first came out, um, our institution was trying to encourage people to, um, to, to look at this area. And, um, and I'm, a, I'm a kidney doctor, and we see the, uh, the effects of COVID a lot. A lot of people end up on dialysis or with kidney failure. But, uh, but in term I'm definitely not an immunologist, but because we knew that this protein ACE2 was involved, um, that, that got me interested because I've had a long-standing interest in that. So the vice chancellor for research here put out this call for grants, and I got a small pilot grant, and we started looking at the role of ACE2 in the acute setting. So that was sort of going on. And just getting that set up was really complicated because for that we were um, collecting samples from people who were acutely infected either in the hospital or as outpatients. And we had all kinds of support from our Translational Research Institute. So we had really a great um, great sort of first line. Simultaneously to that, um, as part of the, uh, the CARES Act from the federal government um, coming through Arkansas, um, our governor here in Arkansas designated some of that to a project to be able to see how many people had antibodies. And a group of, um, of researchers uh, led by Craig Forrest, Carl Baim, Josh Kennedy, um, were putting together a way to measure this. And you may remember at the beginning of the um, pandemic, the antibody assays really were not very good. They, they, they were not very sensitive and had a lot of problems. So this group um, put, developed a, a really good antibody assay against the coronavirus. So we already had that expertise. And so those things were co- sort of going along in parallel. And then we started thinking about, well, how can this, all of this involve long COVID and, and what's the cause of it? And so already we had a lot of pieces put together. We had the ACE2 piece there. We had the antibody piece. Measuring the ACE2 antibodies is, is very pretty straightforward Um, Once you've already got the technology to be able to measure the other antibodies, it actually turned out to be easier to measure the ACE2 antibodies than to measure the coronavirus antibodies. Um, And then uh, Terry Harville's piece in sort of helping us put it all together, um, it really came together nicely. And I think it's none of us had worked together before. It was really a great example of team science.
0: Yeah. And so do you think, obviously, the coronavirus pandemic, like you just described, researchers, all over the country and all over the world sort of started working together in new ways to combat this problem that's facing all of us. Do you think that even after the pandemic subsides, there'll be this sort of um, collaborative spirit or interdisciplinary scientific research spirit going forward now that, you know, you've worked with a team that you never worked with before and you had these really fascinating and important results?
1: I sure hope so. You know, science is so complicated that no one person is really going to be able to get the whole picture. And it really does take a team. And I I think that coronavirus has been a great example of that. And hopefully will spur us all to increase our team science activities, because that's really the way to be successful.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about, um, you had mentioned this briefly, that you're a nephrologist, you study kidneys and kidney disease a friend of mine actually is uh, she's in a uh, fellowship right now as a nephrologist so close to my heart um in that way but how did this how did your expertise in that field sort of help you in this research this immunology research
1: Well, you know, most of us that go into nephrology do it because of our love of physiology and figuring out how complicated things work. The kidney is this incredibly complicated organ that does all kinds of different things in all kinds of different ways. And so I I think it was my love of physiology um, that brought me to thinking about this other thing, another complicated question um, that would be fun to figure out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in life, we uh, <laughs> there's a moment where you're, you kind of pivot in an unexpected way. And um, good luck on your future research study here looking at long COVID. I've just been talking with Dr. John Arthur. He's a professor and chief of the Division of Nephrology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. His latest study was recently published in the Journal of Public Library, of Science. 1 Dr. John Arthur, thank you so much for being here sharing your research with me and our audience.
1: Thank you, Shoshana.
0: Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10:30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined Wherever you get your podcast. Our producer is Claire Scott, and our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.